0: Hey, deserving listeners. It's just me today. So this is part two in which I present my reaction to an interview between Dr. Drew and Trisha Paytas on Dr. Drew's show. So you're going to hear clips of them talking and then I'm going to react to it. I decided to show this, to to publish this on the audio podcast feed because I went into so many clinical issues and I thought it might be interesting to y'all. So let's get to it.
1: Like that kind of stuff, not to get too graphic, but like, you know, stuff that I didn't know was sex. Like, you know, I'm just like, oh, but that like happened. But like, you know, but was it okay? And you know, obviously were you?
2: now i you How old were you and how old were the guys?
1: The first memory I have was a summer camp when I was like six years old. And I remember like, Six years like, I'm old. Gonna-
2: right. So
0: this conversation should stop right away. They are going to some highly traumatic events, and Dr. Drew was just letting it happen. Not okay. And it, I actually have to spend a fair amount of time with my trainees breaking them of this compulsion to ask these kinds of questions. Because it it feels so natural as a therapist to ask, what what'd you go through? And to and to validate and to be there. Say, so, wow, that sounds awful. I'm so sorry you went through that. Tell me more. It, it, it's very intuitive. It's, it, it feels very natural. And it's very unintuitive to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you go into that, we have to do a lot of assessment before we can even begin. And I, I want to get to that. I want you to tell your story for sure. But I need to establish a lot of things before. I need to know a lot of things. I need to know if you have PTSD, which that could take a while for me to assess. We have to assess what kinds of things you can talk about, what kinds of things we should wait on talking about. I do want to talk about it. It can feel discounting. It can feel like telling someone to shut up, you know, telling a client, whoa, 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 shut up. It's counterintuitive to a therapist. It's also when people just don't understand trauma. And you can go through graduate school, you can get a doctorate and not learn this stuff. It's getting better, but it's uh it's it's you would think that my field would educate their clinicians more about this but they don't so we it is what it is at this point so what will happen to individuals that were abused and who knows if trisha was abused sounds like trisha is talking about abuse that when they were six or five they were touched inappropriately i think a lot of us would characterize that as abuse I don't know how Tricia characterizes it. So there's a lot of science pointing out early childhood abuse of some kind, whether sexual, physical, or something. Because they're talking about uh, they have foggy memories, and some of the memories involve inappropriate touching, older men doing things to them uh, starting at six and and going forward. So not all the time. Uh, And that itself can be traumatic, even if you just – happen to have the bad luck to be around a lot of abusers at church or at school or in in your extended family or something but i wouldn't be surprised if trisha eventually in therapy hopefully in the confines of the safety of therapy were to remember early childhood abuses that led to them being susceptible to being abused later in life from other people because the real tragedy is that what happens if you're three, really at any time, that you're abused in any kind of way and terrorized, you can sometimes develop this way of coping with it. You know, we have fight, flight, freeze, appease, or faint. We can fight, we can flight, we can freeze, or we can appease. You know, just okay, I'll do whatever you say, or we can faint and physically pass out. And for a lot of people that go through early childhood abuse, they will not fight or flight because they can't. They can't fight because they're three. They can't run away because they're three. So they're forced to either freeze or appease. I'll do whatever you say. And so for a lot of kids, they will develop this react, this automatic reactivity. It's neurological, it's not a choice. When someone is threatening them, they either freeze and just let it happen, or they will appease and they'll be like, whatever you want. Uh, yeah. And they'll even act, they'll even convince themselves, I like it. I, I like it, even though they absolutely do not like it. And then they're 35, or then they're six. So they're three when they develop that. They're six years old, and an abuser comes along and tests children, kind of like a car prowler testing the doorknobs of different cars to see if there's any cars that are unlocked. And eventually they come across a kid that responds in a way that is either freeze or appease. And the abuser either consciously or unconsciously picks up on that and then targets that person with abuse. So you have a child that's abused at three and then they become the preferred targets at the age of six and 10 and 16 and 56. Because a lot of people don't get treated for this and they're 56 years old and they still have that freeze appease uh, reactivity that they developed neurologically when they were three. And abusers know that, consciously or unconsciously, and the abused continually get abused because of that. So there's a lot of uh, red flags from Tricia, from their description, pointing towards potentially that happening i don't know there's no maybe trisha will get into it Ho- hopefully trisha doesn't get into it because that would mean that they would have to remember mem- memories that they're not ready to remember and it could throw them into a pt it could i don't know could throw them into a ptsd reaction for months
1: or camp and you know i just remember like all the details but i, I don't remember you know my going to my therapist like is it penetration is it just you know outside stuff like i just it's all so foggy to me like it doesn't that part doesn't feel and i don't know it's just. There's a lot, there's a lot that I've never talked about even to like my therapist and it's like, I'm finally talking about it, but it's, it's so hard. Be-
0: Again, huge red flag. I haven't even told my therapist about this. There's probably a good reason for that because they know physically and neurologically that if they go there, they will have a massive distress reaction, dissociative PTSD, complex PTSD, uh, depression, borderline symptoms. They probably know, who knows, but that should be a huge indication to someone like Dr. Drew to say, stop asking questions about this. They're telling us that they don't go there and have never gone there, even to their therapist. So huge red flag. I hope that Dr. Drew puts the brakes on.
1: Because I just don't, I don't remember so much of it. And I just like, I just, I don't know.
2: What makes you withhold it? So,
0: I get it, I think, that Dr. Drew wants to validate them. Dr. Drew wants to say, hey, you don't have to withhold it. You, you're, you don't have to be ashamed. It, it's, you were victimized. You did nothing wrong. You can talk about it. You were the victim. I, you, you have the right. You deserve to be able to talk about it, have people take care of you. I get it. I'm pretty sure that's where Dr. Drew is coming from. But... And that's where I used to come from in my early career, for the first you know five seven years of being a therapist, because that's what I was told. I was taught this way of approaching trauma. But uh, this, and by implication, what Doctor Drew is, you know, you talk about it. You know, why why do you feel like you have to hold it back? It's because of, uh, and I know some of you know this because you've been through it, and you've experienced bad therapists who didn't know about trauma. Because I know some of you email me that. You can go into a session with a clinician. They can have this approach, and you can feel this subtle pressure to talk about it, or suggestion, or invitation. And you feel like, well, I guess I, you know, I guess that's what therapy is. And then you start talking about what happened. And then for two months, you're depressed. You can't go to work. You can't sleep. You're just on. You're a veg. You know, on watching TV. You hate yourself. You're numbed out. You need substances. You, you get thrown into an eating disorder symptom. You know, episode or whatever. So hopefully the breaks will get pumped here.
1: I think just like the fact that I've always denied, like I'm like, oh, my childhood was good because my parents were, you know, they were busy. My mom was a single mom. I never saw her. She worked four jobs. And my dad would just take me, put me to summer camp in the summer. So I like.
0: Okay, interesting. So they're talking about their childhood. Actually, I want to rewind that because they said it so quickly. Uh, My mom worked a lot, single mom. And my dad would just put me in summer camps. So what that can be the basis of the traumas that I've been talking about, that for a two-year-old, for a four-year-old to feel, and I know a lot of you can relate to this because I know a lot of you have emailed or commented below about this sort of thing, that from just regular life, no hardcore abuse of a child, you're four years old and you don't get to see your mom very often and you definitely don't get to see your dad very often and your dad doesn't reach out to you and your mom is frazzled you know she's working for jobs because she's trying to put a roof over your head when she comes home she's stressed out and she doesn't have patience for me i have three other siblings that are trying to vie for my mom's attention maybe my mom's depressed or anxious and just not emotionally there for me so i'm alone i you know Essentially, I have a mom and I have a dad, but I'm basically alone. And when I cry, when I'm scared, when I need someone to play with, when I need attention, no one's really there. And sometimes they are there, though. Sometimes mom is there. Sometimes dad does show up. And, and oh, and so that inconsistent parenting definitely can be the basis for borderline personality disorder. We don't need abuse to create borderline.
1: I always don't want my parents because I've talked about this recently, and everyone's like, Well, your parents should be in jail, and all this stuff like that. And I was just like, I just don't want anyone to like get hate about it. And I, you know, it's just you know, a lot to parents process. do the
0: best they can. All right, so let's rewind that because I, I want to hear those details. Let's rewind that.
1: I think just like the fact that I've always denied, like, I'm like, Oh, my childhood was good because my. Parents were, you know, they were busy. My mom was a single mom. I never saw her, she worked four jobs. And my dad would just take me, put me to summer camp in the summer.
0: My mom, I was a single, my mom was a single mom. I never saw her. She worked four jobs. And my dad would just put me in summer camps. Wow. And they're saying, I was always in denial about my childhood. And I I always thought my childhood was great. And that happens to kids who are neglected and abused especially in this category where there's no overt signs of being mistreated. You might even look towards your cousins or your friends and think, oh, I got it better than you. But emotional attunement, you know, for you out there who are parents, you understand this, that parenting is about putting in the time. It's about showing up. It's about being there, just hanging out. Kids playing, you know, drawing a picture at the age of seven and and she says, hey, look what I drew. And you're like, oh, that looks great. Those those are the moments. It's not about giving gifts or being there for birthday parties or, you know, buying, working for money to buy them a, a new toy or something. That is not parenting. Parenting is about, you know, kids, they want to be with you. They want to be in earshot or, you know, your visual. They want to be seen by you. They want to be noticed by you. They want to be able to come to you when, when they need you. You know, they get scared at the age of 4 on the playground. They want to run back to you and are you there? And then you say, "Yeah, I'm here. You're okay. You're doing alright." And then they go back. Those, you know, that rinse and repeat every day. And of course that's how we evolved, right? When 100,000 years ago, 50,000, even a couple hundred years ago, children weren't, you know, parents didn't go away usually. The parents were right there all the time throughout everything. And so that's our natural state and that's how our emotions adapted. We need that. and so I feel really bad for Trisha. Trisha sounds like they were completely on their own, like a wild child. Mom, I never saw my mom. she worked for four jobs. I would see my dad sometimes and for the summers, and he would put me in summer camp. So to the three year old one, that's horrible for a lot of reasons that I can't I don't have time to go into. But one of the conclusions that you can derive from that is I'm not lovable, and in order for me to get my needs met, I have to scream, and also, uh, you can retain this notion of all bad or all good, which maybe they'll get into. Let's watch.
1: So I like I always don't want my parents because I've talked about this recently, and everyone's like, "Well, your parents should be in jail" and all this stuff like that. And I was just like, I just don't want anyone to like get hate. About it. And I, you know.
0: Yeah, that's gotta be tough for a public figure like Trisha to talk openly about what they went through, would possibly cause maybe even doxing of the parents. And Trisha doesn't want that. So Trisha's trying to ride that line somehow. Also, I found that people who go through mistreatment, uh, depending on the situation, will sometimes idealize their parents. You know, who knows about Trisha? but for people who go through what Trisha went through, sometimes what they will do, they're, they're two years old, they're seven years old, and they long for their parents, and, but they're hurt and they're angry, but they long for their parents. And so when their parents show up, they want to blast their parents. They wanna say, how come you're never there for, my, for me? How come you're always putting me in summer camp? And maybe they even kinda of do but it doesn't work, it causes even more rejection. So then they learn, I have to suppress, I can't be angry at them, because if I'm angry, I'll never get any of my needs met. So the very few times that I see them, it's sort of like you're in solitary confinement in a prison and the you know, prison worker comes by and gives you food and you're so angry because they haven't fed you well enough. And so you say, how come you're not feeding me enough? And then the prison guard says, well, fine, I guess I won't feed you at all today. So then you learn I can't complain (laughs) because complaining just causes things to be even worse for me. It's already bad, but complain makes it worse. But I still feel the feelings. So how do I deal with that? Well, push comes to shove. I just get rid of the feelings or I deny the feelings or I develop a fantasy about what's happening. And so I tell myself, no, my parents are good. My parents are good. My parents are good. Then I won't get frustrated. Then I won't have to control my emotions. And then I will get that little bit of cr- the little crumbs of attachment and love that I am happening to get right now. I don't know if that's what Trisha went through, but I, I've seen that in my office. A lot of people come in with this narrative that things were great. My parents are great. But I never saw my dad because, you know, I only saw him in the summertime. And then he would always put me in summer camp. I never saw my mom because she worked four, hour, four different jobs. And when she came home, she was too busy for me. But my childhood was great it's just no, a lot to parents process, do uh. the
2: best they can parents do the best they can when, when you blame if we if we were to blame your mom for this for instance i mean now we have another mm-hmm. victim your mom yeah. right and i uh i don't agree with that dr drew is entitled to his own point of view
0: but uh it's not a it doesn't it's not victimizing to place blame on people now in all likelihood the parents of trisha had their own issues and their own childhood problems so the blame probably goes back generations upon generations, or maybe even back to some refugees, you know, a, a, some families, when you go back a couple generations, three generations, there was a war, there was refugees, there were, there was famine that challenged the parents. And then that, uh, attachment disruption gets passed down through the generation anyway. So, uh, to attribute blame to the parents, which, given what we've heard from Trisha, I think would be rational. I mean, at least the dad for not being there. It sounds like he could have been there. Anyway, now the dad was probably abandoned or neglected when he was a kid, too, but it's still the dad's quote unquote fault, or at least the factors that went into Trisha's personality began in childhood, which was largely engineered by the parents. So we can certainly quote unquote blame the parents. I don't think that's victimizing the parents. Now, if you, and my dogs are barking, if you uh, blame them on the air and then the entire internet comes down on your parents, then that is victimizing the parents. But Dr. Drew was saying something else that is, well, you know, parents do the best that they can. And often that's true. But I think for the Trishas of the world, they deserve some kind of this isn't your fault you were treated poorly now we could say that it's not your parents fault that they treated you poorly because they were treated poorly when they were kids and and so on but it definitely isn't your fault that this happened you were treated badly do we blame the parents for that do we just say it was a factor in the development of a personality but the the general thing that maybe dr drew will save himself he's saying we don't want to blame the parents because we don't want to victimize
2: the parents. Huh? I, I, I don't make any sense. It's so shattering to them to think that they allowed to happen to you what was so horrible for them. It really is difficult. Yeah. So, uh, So I sort of admire your attempt to sort of understand your parents point of view and not blame them doesn't make it okay it's not like okay that that happened nothing's okay about this but we don't have to have another victim okay um i I don't know that
0: that victim word just isn't resonating with me the rest of it i can agree with what dr drew was saying but this attributing cause to the parents i don't think that's victimizing the parents now I don't know if Doctor Drew is interpreting Trisha correctly. Trisha is saying, "I don't like to think about my childhood. I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I was, I was neglected as a child, but I went into denial about how terrible my childhood was, and I don't want everyone to hate my. You know, it sounds to me like Trisha recognizes that their childhood was bad, because other people are hearing it and saying." you should have called the police back then that that's awful uh, you know neglect and we have to imagine that there's much more details to what these other people heard that would prompt them to say you should have called the police so what i hear trisha saying is i was neglected in an almost criminal way according to other people but i've been kind of in denial about it and i also don't want the internet to attack my parents so what i'm not what i'm not hearing from trisha is trisha saying I don't want to blame my parents. What I do hear Trisha saying is, I kind of think it was my parents' fault. And for Dr. Drew to say, don't blame your parents, I'm glad you're not blaming your parents. I don't know if he's really sinking with Trisha right now, but who knows, I'm I'm just a, yeah, by the way, whenever I comment on these kinds of things, it's so easy for me to criticize because I'm not under pressure, you know, I can pause this right now, go to the bathroom, chill out, hang out with my barking dogs. Dr. Drew can't do that. He's on live TV, and when I've been under those circumstances, I crumble, (laughs) and I make a lot of mistakes that Dr. Drew could criticize me for
1: bringing it up one time um at the at the place that it happened and you know it started at a young age i just remember everyone calling me a liar from a young age so at some point you just stop talking about things because you're just like and that's kind of where i'm at even now like i was opened up about it i'm like, let me just shut back down again because just and me, i'm just talking about the internet obviously in therapy i'm time to talk about it but like on the internet i'm like let me just stop talking about this because like it doesn't feel good i th-
0: think for whatever reason there are certain public figures who just are easy targets for bullying and for hate and Trisha fits those, that mold, that uh, persona. Kim Kardashian is another person that I think incurs a lot of hate and a lot of bullying online. Uh, I don't know that for sure, obviously. But they're also saying that they lied or that they were accused of lying a lot as a kid, and they are continuing to be accused of lying on the internet today. So what does that mean? Who knows, but it's possible that they aren't aware of the fact that they're lying. And as Dr. Drew said earlier, lying is volitional. You're, you're trying to deceive. If you're just messing things up due to m- misremembering or due to your own disorders, that's not lying, that's messing things up, that's getting distorted. So I wonder what that's about. Trisha's saying that they were accused of being, of lying a lot as a kid and as an adult. Is that a misperception on other people's part or is it something that's happening that they're doing that is lying? but they're, it's out of their awareness, let's find out.
1: Fine, like you know, as soon as I snap out of it, I snap out of it.
2: <laughs> so let me, um, people are questioning my training for being able to talk to you about these issues. Let's be clear, I am not treating Trisha, I'm exploring her borderline process. I personally treated two or 3,000 borderline patients. Oh, Dr. Drew,
0: never read the comments, especially those. Uh, I've been there before. This random accusation you know people on the internet there's a certain class and i they're a minority for sure of people who just love to say you're unqualified you don't know what you're talking about and they don't provide any evidence and back in the day when i first started this podcast 13 years ago i would respond i'd be like what do you mean what did i say that indicated to you i didn't have enough experience to talk about this sort of thing and they would never have anything to say. Or they'd criticize a little bit. of like, well, okay, you can disagree with me on that, but how does that call my whole qualification into question? <laughs> I'm, And then I would feel compelled to justify. I'm a professor. I'm, yeah. It's like, uh, but Dr. Drew is falling into that trap. <laughs> and you'd think by now, Dr. Drew, having been in this kind of industry, I think for 30 plus years, pretty long time, because back in the you know, Los Angeles days, he was with uh, K Rock or something. Uh, you'd think he'd be over it, but he feels the need to to justify his credentials, which. Um, <laughs> I've been there before, let's just put it that way.
2: All the other times in her life. They want to focus on the bad moments, the worst possible pieces that you can clip out. It's like, look, Trisha, the way that you are now, it's like you're, you're, you're calm, you're composed, you're talking about your mental illness, you're talking about your struggles and you're being very open with it. Whereas most people, myself included, I wouldn't feel even comfortable coming on.
0: Okay, so they're talking about how Trisha incurs a lot of hate on the internet. I don't know if it's fair or not. I could imagine that a lot of it is not fair. And I often try to figure this out. Why do some people on the internet, or why do just some subjects, you know, like I do reaction videos for a 90 day fiance. And a lot of people, if they're gonna talk about that show, even in person, I'll experience, that they just wanna make fun of the people. They want, oh, that person's stupid, this this person's a joke. I hate that person, that person's ugly. and I wonder why that is, because we don't do that with our family members, hopefully. We don't do that with our friends, hopefully. We don't do that with our co-workers, hopefully. We don't even do it necessarily with someone we see at the grocery store, hopefully. But something about these public figures, all of our anger and our judgment and our childishness, if you will, comes out at these individuals. And I I wonder why that is, and they're trying to figure it out. Dr. Drew was saying maybe it's Trisha's fault because Trisha has borderline personality disorder and is projecting some of this all good, all bad thing. I don't know if that makes any sense to me. I'll tell you something from my life that I think pertains. When I was, so I've kept all of my yearbooks. I have, they're behind me. I have all of my yearbooks from 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth, all the way through 12th. And every, I don't know, five years or so, I'll kind of flip through them. And one of the things that I've, that I'll see immediately that I'm ashamed of is my fourth by seventh grade yearbook so if you're not from the states you don't have this yearbooks are these things you get to the end of the school year that have all of the pictures and and pictures of of sports and just it's just a like a big book that exemplifies that year of school and all the students and teachers and staff and everything. and one of the things that you do with these yearbooks is you sign other people's yearbooks you know give me your yearbook and you sign hey have a good summer stay cool Da, 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 I signed your crack, that kind of thing, and you give it back to them. And then, the do people still do that? Still do that? My seventh grade yearbook, I went through my own class, my fellow seventh graders, and wrote on maybe ten percent an insult or a praise on certain people that I knew. I went through with some people and be like, they're a jerk face, they're 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 ridiculous, they're stupid, they're dumb, they're an idiot. I did that. And then with other people that I liked, I'd be like cool person, cool, per- cool person, cool person in eighth grade. Nothing like that. Seventh grade. Apparently I was a completely different sort of person. Eighth grade didn't do that. And actually my dad got a video camera when I was in, I think fifth or sixth grade when I was in seventh grade, I was a jerk face. <laughs> I was in, but why was I a jerk face? I was massively insecure as a seventh grader, just all up in my head, you know, and Because I was insecure and because I didn't know where I was, I didn't know where to put my hands kind of a thing. You know, when you're standing on stage, you don't want to put your hands. I uh, project, I uh, displaced my self-hatred into my yearbook. And I went through and said, I hate that person. And I'm going to publicly state. Because the other thing is, I would hand this yearbook out to other people. They would look at who I said was a hated person and who I said was a cool person. So I was just, I was public to some extent about this. It's awful. Eighth grade didn't do that. And what correlates? Well, I wasn't as insecure as I was as a seventh grader. Seventh grade, very insecure. Eighth grade, something happened developmentally or socially or something, and I became more of who I would eventually become. But seventh grade, very insecure. Okay. When you're insecure, when you have self hatred, I think a very pleasing thing to do is to judge and criticize someone else, right? Call someone a name. I'm gonna publicly humiliate that person. Certain public figures, reality TV people, YouTube people, I think particularly women, because we live in a massively misogynistic society, I hope everyone understands that, and we live in a mental health stigmatizing society, a gender fluid stigmatizing uh, society, transphobic society, that anyone who steps forward as a woman, as a strong woman, as a successful woman, as a person who talks about gender issues, as a person who talks about their feelings, it, it just pulls together all of the seventh graders among us, who might not be seventh graders anymore, who are massively insecure and they're, ju- they're, tr- and they're sad and they're, they're struggling and they're just trying to get some semblance Of self-esteem and if they push someone else down it elevates them kind of It doesn't solve their problem but it, it distracts them just for a second particularly if someone's being bullied you know one of the things that I hope you never had to observe but I'm guessing a lot of you did is some people just get targeted you know that one kid just gets targeted by not only just the bullies but kind of by everybody why is that well because once someone is established by society as the bully as the scapegoat then we all kind of turn on that person because they're an easy target and we know that they can't fight back with us because they can't fight back on all of us because we're all kicking them. And so if, if, if I just walk up to someone and call them a bad name and I'm the only one, they might come after me. But if 10,000 people are calling someone a bad name, I could sort of pile on and you know get my dig in and I can feel better about myself and there won't be any repercussions. I think the Trishes of the world represent that to us, that they get designated socially and they might kind of present themselves in a way that make them easy targets. Not that I'm victim blaming, but there are certain qualities that can be managed that will make you less of a target. Who knows? And as a society, we turn on that person and collectively, we all feel a little bit better than ourselves. But what the real cure is, is to help people with their relational trauma such that they don't feel terrible about themselves, such that they don't have to
2: act like a seventh grader. Hashtag not all creators Do but I don't know if it stayed with you. And that is that people with borderline process, and we're gonna to to take a break in a couple of minutes, by the way. I want to warn you about that. We're gonna take a little commercial break, but <laughs> but we have um, you you have something you use something called projective identification, which is you will put your feelings into other people. Interesting. I don't know if I've ever had an opportunity
0: to react to someone else talking about projective identification in one of my YouTube videos. It's something that I've been Uh, using this concept and this defense mechanism of projective identification for years. I've been lecturing about it. I've been talking about it on the podcast. One of the very first episodes that I ever did that you can find, I think, on YouTube is about projective, maybe it's not on YouTube. Anyway, it's a central concept that I use. I use it to understand a lot of different weird human relationship behaviors. So Dr. Drew is bringing up projective identification, and it sounds like what he's saying is that he is saying that for people with borderline, people like Trisha, that they will inject feelings into other people, which is one way to say it. Let's see what Dr. Drew says here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a new year, so of course it's time for New Year's resolutions but often those are just manifestations of internalized harmful voices, voices that tell us we're not good enough. So instead of making a resolution to change something, let's recognize that we are already good enough. Now, most people think of therapy as a place for us to work on our problems. But there are several schools of thought within the field of psychotherapy that adamantly reject that paradigm like narrative therapy and solution focused instead these clinicians help us focus on what we're already doing well and by helping us do that data shows that we often will gravitate towards more beneficial patterns well one place you can find such therapists is on BetterHelp. if you're thinking of starting therapy it's definitely worth giving a try So, celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Kirk today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kirk
2: and then manipulate them. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. You'll you'll like accuse the other person of having an emotion or you actually feel an emotion coming from another person that is actually something in you you don't like and you sort of see it in the other person or put it in the other person. Okay, yeah. So... I don't know if I would word it this way to Tricia. I would
0: say, if I were there, I would say, so there's this thing called projective identification. We all do it, not just you, Tricia, not just those with borderline, but we all engage in projective identification to some degree. People with personality disorders often do it a lot more, particularly with people with borderline narcissism, histrionic, will do it a lot more than other people, but we all do it. So what is Dr. Drew talking about? Well, what he's talking about, I think, is uh, this process that we learned early or we maybe have the capacity for when we're young. Anyway, I won't go into the weeds on that. So when we feel challenged, well, how do I, how do I just it's, it's such a complicated topic. Okay, it's essentially, and this is how I summarize it for my students. It's essentially a recreation of a relationship. That's sort of the easiest way of conceptualizing it and remembering it. Projective identification is the active recreation, it's unconscious, it's an active unconscious recreation of a past relationship that was often very difficult for us. So we're criticized as children and we internalize this relationship, and this is how I describe it because it's helpful to think of it as dyads that I perceive the other as being critical, I perceive the self as being criticized and I internalize that relationship because you're not only observing the other person but you're kind of observing the self and so you internalize that, that whole relationship It's a dyad. It exists within us and within our psyche and left to our own devices, we will beat ourselves up and we will feel Like we are, you know, we will do this to, we'll talk bad to ourselves and we will feel bad. So we'll we'll continue to recreate that relationship that we internalized internally. I think most of us could uh, identify with that. But internally, it makes it much harder to deal with because the self voice is very difficult. Plus, we don't want to identify with this voice, even though it is us. We're saying, we're telling the self, you're a terrible person, you're a piece of crap. But we don't want to identify with this voice because we saw it outside of and we don't like it, but it's become us. So we will also criticize other people, but we'll deny it that we're criticizing other people. We'll say, well, I'm just telling the truth or I'm I'm not being mean, but the other person is absolutely receiving it in the same way that we received it when we received it. (laughs) So uh, we don't want to admit that about ourselves though. So uh, one of the ways to protect the ego from having to admit that we we'll not only criticize, because you know someone criticized us, we internalize that, we criticize the self, we criticize other people, but we don't want to admit that. So what do we, how do we protect the ego from acknowledging that we are in fact the criticizer just like they were in the past? Is we will accuse other people and socialize other people to criticizing us. So you say, look, you're criticizing me. And so in effect, I'm projecting what I internalized from my past. I'm identifying with me I'm projecting the other onto someone else. I'm socialized, I might even choose someone that's a little critical. I project it onto them, I see them as critical even though they're not being critical. I socialize them to be critical, I sort of force them to be, maybe I act in a criticizable way to suck them into criticizing me. And thus I've made the internal external. And we do this for a lot of different reasons. One, it's more comfortable if it's external because it's harder if it's us doing it to us. Two, we can deny that part of ourselves that's critical because look, it's happening on the outside. 3 it is a model for attachment you know when the person was criticized against in the past that's how we we equated the criticism with attachment and love and so when we're in a relationship it feels natural to have some sort of critical element because it was normal to us very normalized and the fourth reason why we do it is because we're trying to work it out it didn't work out in the past we never had a good comeback we never convinced we never became acceptable to the other person completely and so we recreate it in this unconscious way hoping that we can work it out somehow so the criticizer will actually accept us and not criticize us. But of course, if it's all out of our awareness, we might be so good at choosing a critical person and so good at at socializing them to be critical of us that the trauma continues. So not only were we experiencing criticism when we were a child, but now we've engineered it in our personal life currently and they're continuing to criticize us, which reinforces this dyad inside of us, which gives us more reason to use projective identification in the future. Does that make sense to people? So for people with borderline, they also use projective identification and what they internalized was abandonment and betrayal, right? Often, rejection. So they're being betrayed and they feel betrayed. So they internalize that relationship. So they have the betrayer and the betrayed and they betray themselves a lot of times. They'll reject themselves. They will also betray other people but they will be unconscious about it because they don't want to admit it about themselves that they are in fact the betrayer because they internalize the betrayer. So they will socialize other people, including maybe their therapist, that they they will find people, but even if they can't find someone, they will accuse the other, they will project onto that person and see that person as being betraying of them, even though they're not being, or they might uh socialize the other person to betray them somehow, kind of force their hand, force them to betray him. And then they'll say, hey, you're betraying me, even though it was originally this past betrayer and all, and secondarily it was them as the betrayer. And now they're just forcing someone else to become the betrayer. So I think that's what Dr. Drew was talking about. Does that make sense to people?
2: Sound familiar?
1: I've, I've heard that. I've heard that I do that and I, I can't recognize that. But like, I mean, I okay, obviously heard can't. that from a lot of people. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, so what that is, is when somebody is in the room with you, they'll feel something unpleasant. And if they're, if they're attuned to themselves, they'll feel like that unpleasant feeling isn't a part of themselves. Like where did that come from? Right. So this is something that I don't frame it this way, but it is one
0: way to put it. When you are a clinician working with someone with borderline or narcissism or histrionic, you will feel feelings that are very intense as a clinician, as a therapist. You will feel fear, you will feel, you will feel like you're a bad person, you will feel fragile, and the one way of putting it is that it's the borderline patient injecting you, socializing you to feel those feelings because th- through projective identification, that process I was discussing, they're injecting feelings into you, they're socializing you to feel a certain way. When you're afraid, you wanna reject, right? When, when someone makes you afraid, you wanna run away, right? And so the borderline individual might inject fear into you subtly by treating you certain way or insulting you in a certain way or having a certain intensity of language. It's all subconscious by the way. The borderline individual has no control over this. It's just, and none of us do, none of us have control. And the idea is to try to help to have control over it through awareness, but anyway. And by subtly doing these things to the therapist, the therapist now feels terribly afraid. It's one of the central features of treating people with narcissism or borderline or histrionic it is the sense of fear that you will feel. And this requires a lot of self-awareness on the behalf of the therapist, a lot of, a lot of therapy that the therapist has to go through because what often happens without that process of therapy and personal knowledge that the therapist gains is they will feel the fear, but they won't recognize it. They'll recognize the senses that go through their mind of, I don't wanna work with this person. This client is too resistant. This client is not working well in therapy. I'm gonna refer them out to someone else. I'm not qualified to work with this client. I'm gonna refer them out. And a lot of people with borderline get shuffled from, from therapist to therapist because the therapist is not aware, my guess is, they're not aware of how to notice those feelings and how to accept it and how to normalize it. Because when you're treating someone with borderline, you're gonna feel afraid because they're gonna use projective identification with you as all clients do, by the way. And their projection is the way that they felt when they were three. They were terrified when they were three. Trisha, I don't know, but we can imagine Trisha being three years old, mom is working four jobs, and Trisha never sees their mom. Trisha never sees their dad, because dad is gone, and only when Trisha does see dad, dad sends Trisha away to a summer camp. When you're alone like that at the age of three, you're afraid, you're terrified, you're alone. You feel betrayed, you're angry, you're you're lonely. You feel abandoned. So that's been internalized. And then they will project that into other people. And then now you feel abandoned. Now you feel afraid. Now you feel like there's something wrong with you. You don't know what to do. And unless you get to know that feeling as a therapist and have your own process, your own therapist, your own consultation, your own self-awareness, counter-transference management system, then you're going to have these thoughts of, I need to get rid of this client. And it's one of the tragedies of my field is that a lot of people who need therapy the most people with borderline histrionic narcissism are rejected the most (laughs) and with every trainee that I've worked with they almost always and hopefully they do will run into someone who has borderline or narcissism or histrionic and this is the crucible that makes the therapist they can either, as trainees, give in to the fear and say, I'm not gonna work with those people, which is up to them, you know, it's a decision you can make, and sometimes people make it, and I guess that's okay. But what I tell people as they're going through it is, you know that people come to therapy because they have problems, right? <laughs> and that sounds ridiculous, right? It's like, yeah, of course people come to therapy, but there's this fantasy that a lot of trainees will have a lot of novice therapists will have, that all of their clients will love them, that every client will be easy, that all you have to do is just provide this service, this wonderful loving service, and the clients will just eat it up and everything, and you'll love each other and everything will be great. Sometimes that happens. But sometimes people come to therapy because they have legit relationship problems and they will distort their vision of you and they will be very, very scared of you and also very angry at you because they're transferring and they're displacing their past onto you. All that we understand, it's in, we intellectually understand. But when novice therapists experience it, they don't wanna do it. And I get it, it is hard. But through that process, you become the therapist that you will become. You will, you will you know, overcome that and you will say, okay, I accept that into my, it's not gonna be easy. My dissertation, my research study, was on seasoned therapists' experience with difficult clinical moments, and a lot of the, so these are therapists that are 15 plus years into their career, and I would ask them about their difficult clinical moments, and a lot of them described experiences with clients who had borderline. And the, it's intense, It is, isn't an, and the themes that I found in the reactivity were a fight or flight reaction, a, like deer in headlights reaction, a lot of fear, a, a feeling of deep, deep confusion, a feeling of anger at the client, a feeling of wanting to run out of the room or a feeling of wanting to uh, uh, terminate the client or a feeling of wanting to quit the profession altogether, a feeling of wanting to hide your feelings, and f- there was a sixth theme that I'm forgetting. Anyway, but you know, those are a lot of intense feelings. So what Dr. Drew was talking about is that injection of that feeling through transference.
2: I wish Dr. Drew would say that everyone does this, not just Tricia and those with borderline. From It came from Tricia. That's part of Ow. borderline disorder is that you can do that. Yeah. And again, i that's what I think is happening with you in the world. Like you're projecting a part of yourself into the world and they're all responding to it with this split, this good-bad split. I don't like this argument at all. So
0: Tricia is incurring from the descriptions, who knows, I don't know, a lot of bullying and abuse from people online. And according to Dr. Drew, this is Trisha's fault because Trisha has borderline and as a product of borderline, injects feelings into other people. It's absolutely possible, I will go with Dr. Drew, that it's absolutely possible that if Trisha, and Trisha says that they have borderline, that given their relational traumas and their transference issues and their projective identification proclivities, will socialize individuals in the room with them and even people on the internet to feeling certain feelings. And that might result in Trisha being attacked. You know, I'll go with Dr. Drew on that. On the other hand, without some major asterisk there of it's not really your fault. <laughs> and people can decide to be a jerk face or not. Uh, and actually this brings up another important thing that I talk about with my trainees is the Trishes of the world will use projective identification with the therapist or with an audience. But us as therapists, we have also have our own histories. We're not blank slates. We're not, you know, perfectly attached individuals. So we have our own traumas. We have our own projective identification. And so as, as My clients are using projective identification with me. I am simultaneously using projective identification with them. I have my own relational traumas. I have my own internalized relationships. I have my own things that I'm displacing and transferring onto my clients. That's why we call it counter-transference. I mean, sometimes I'll just call it literal transference because anyway, I won't go to the weeds on that. But So with Trisha, they might be socializing the audience to abandon them. And to feel a rejection of them in the same you know so the model goes that Trisha was abandoned and neglected as a child and internalized that relationship and then abandons the self and the self feels abandoned. And then, through projective identification, projects the abandoner out into the world and socializes others, and maybe even finds others that are susceptible to this projection to reject them and then re-experiences that betrayal and that abandonment. It's absolutely possible with an audience, but at the very same time, not, in be- not because of, but at simultaneously, the audience has their own problems. Because when I see Trisha, I don't want to reject them. I don't want to abandon them. But if I have unprocessed uh, uh, and I have unhealed problems from my past, that result in these internal wars that result in my need for externalizing the relation inter- the internalized relationship, i.e., projective identification, then Trisha and I might very well sync up with our projective identifications, where Trisha seeks my approval and I don't approve. And I actively and I very actively watch Trisha on YouTube and actively abandon and reject and criticize and betray them. It's an interesting hypothesis.
1: Wow, that's interesting. So how do I, cause I, the last friend of me's was literally that. He was like, you're getting angry. I'm like, I'm not angry. And then I started getting angry cause he's like, you're angry and that's okay. And I'm like, but I'm not angry. So then everyone was like, you're, he's like, you're gaslighting me. So then it becomes like, but how do I stop it? Like I really, cause I don't, I really didn't feel angry in the moment. And then I got angry and then I was like, well, what the hell, like how do I?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. From the outside, when I saw that video, Obviously, Trisha knows themselves much better than I would from the outside. But when I saw that conflict between Trisha and Ethan, it did look like Trisha was angry. Now, is anger the best word for it? Was it frustrated? Was it upset? Was it off put or something? Who knows? But Trisha did look upset and didn't look terribly upset. And in the moment, I wondered why Trisha was denying being upset. Trisha had a lot of reasons to be upset. They were under the impression that they were being exploited. They were feeling as though Ethan wasn't listening or was being hurtful or something. So there's reasons to be hurt and angry. And at the time, Trisha was denying it. So on one hand, we'll take Trisha's word for it that they weren't angry and they were confused as to why Ethan kept saying that. And then the word gaslighting comes into play. They both claimed that they were, and listen to my episode on gaslighting, where I actually talk about that incident. And uh, so there's that. But let's go with the model of projective identification where Trisha was angry at the time, but wanted to engage in projective identification. Who knows? It's a long shot. So it goes like this, where uh, who knows? This is just one way of seeing it. Is that Trisha experienced as a child someone being angry at them? Maybe it was when Trisha was being demanding and saying, "Love me? How come you're not paying attention to me?" And there's anger or something, and that gets internalized, where there's an angry, unfair person, and a person who is kind of the victim of that subtle anger. Maybe even it's has this element of "I'm not angry," where Trisha, as a child, is saying how come you're angry at me? And the parents are like, I'm not angry at you. I kind of feel like you're angry at me. I'm not angry. So there's some kind of anger plus denial aspect to it. So that gets internalized. And then there's the self, the perception of the self that feels confused and feels threatened, but feels like the person is lying about the anger. Anyway, so there's that internalized relationship. Then through, and it becomes difficult. And through projective identification, Someone in Trisha's shoes could socialize someone to feel. So that's why I had the dyad. Because sometimes we project the other, but sometimes we project the self, the self-image. And we identify with the other. So maybe what Trisha did is they projected the other, how Trisha felt when Trisha was a child, onto Ethan. And identified with the other and became angry but in denial of the anger and made Ethan feel the way Trisha did when Trisha was a child. That happens a lot. And then uh, by injecting this feeling of confusion into uh, into Ethan, Ethan then becomes kind of angry and then says, hey, and starts to attack in the same way that the person, anyway, it, it, it's complicated, but I'll get into the weeds if I go too far down. <laughs> I hope this is interesting because I don't know if any of y'all are following it. Let's get back to the
2: show. Wait,
1: how do I not do that then? I don't know. I don't want to be that person.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was either him projecting anger onto you or him experiencing your anger that you hadn't felt yet. Isn't that interesting? I
1: had not felt Isn't that crazy? I swear on my life. Yeah. Because I was like, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm just having a conversation. And then by the end of it, I was. You know, that's you the weird thing up. about <laughs> that is
2: the uncanny. If you
0: do a borderline a lot, you. So. I don't know if this is what Dr. Drew was saying. I, I don't think he was, but uh, Ethan also has projective identifications as well. I don't know what those are, but Ethan and Trisha will come together with both of their projective identification. And and this is the pinnacle of my theoretical understanding of how people work, how their development works is when you it's one thing to understand the complicated way in which we use projective identification ourselves. It's another thing to understand someone else's projective identification, but when we see them working together, that's when everything comes together because we don't use projective identification in a vacuum. We use it with other people, and they are using it with us at the same time, and so this was, my dog is barking, this is when I figured out the perfect uh, integration of psychodynamic, psychoanalytic object relations theory, which is a very individualistic theory, with systems and family systems in Boenian theory, because you have the interest psychic and the interpersonal coming together. You have projective identification, which is an, it motivated from in, inside. It starts from the outside, it, it, it's, and then it comes from within. But then they work together and they happen all at the same time, reinforcing each other which maybe I'll have time
2: to go into, but
0: I have definitely in past episodes.
2: There, but there's a lot to do, right? There's a lot of stuff and you're, yeah. and you're taking it very seriously. You should be proud of yourself. Um, yeah. I, I understand at one point you you thought you might have dissociative identity disorder. Do you do a lot of dissociating?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, what I call it blacking out, but I, I black out. Again, not recently. So I don't know.
0: Okay, so some of y'all know that I did a recent episode on dissociative identity disorder and people who are faking it online or supposedly faking, faking it online, listen to that mini deep dive on that. My take is, is that uh, some people might be faking it. Some people might just be representing it in a weird way. And a lot of people seem to be representing their legit dissociative identity disorder condition. Also, there's some rumors that it's not a real thing and that everyone fakes it, and that is not true. None of the experts in dissociation in general or none of the experts in uh, psychopathology think that, or at least very few, think that it's a faked, completely faked disorder. Uh, something like 10 to 20%, according to research, have of patients who present with DID are found to be quote-unquote faking it. <clears throat> but people fake every disorder in the DSM, so that doesn't mean, and maybe they fake dissociative identity disorder more often, but it's still a minority of people. Plus, most people don't come into uh, our offices complaining of DID. They will complain of the depression or the suicidality or the memory lapses, and they don't know they have DID. So it's not like it's common that people you know, use DID as some sort of tool to manipulate other people. And the idea when you actually work with people with dissociative identity disorder, it is a debilitating disorder, particularly in the beginning. It is awful. I mean, just imagine not remembering like a week of your life and people say that you were doing things. It's awful. So what uh, Tricia is talking about is that they had blackouts and self-diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. So what does that mean? Maybe They'll get into it with more detail but it sounds like and now they're not experiencing it anymore which could mean that the triggers aren't there based on the very little that i just heard i wouldn't be surprised if they don't suffer from a more general dissociative disorder in which so in general and i go into more detail in other episodes I've, i've done full deep dives on various different dissociative disorders but what happens is that when we're young, we seem to have this mechanism available to very young children that when, you're, when we're being terrorized, when we're forced into a lot of fight or flight adrenaline reactions when we're children, that, and we're in scary situations, that we have this mechanism available to us at that age that helps us to distance ourselves from what's happening because we're stuck. So remember we have fight, flight, freeze, appease, or faint. So when you're three years old, you can't really fight. You can't really uh, f- you can't really run away. You can freeze. You can appease, and you can faint. And when you're doing one of those things, when you're freezing, one of the things that you can do is like, okay, I'm going to freeze, and I'm going to I'm going to pull away from reality in my mind. I can't run away physically, but I can run away in my mind. So. I'm being abused and I'll, you know, this is just gonna happen, I don't have any power over it, but I do, I can kind of separate myself. It's, it's a subconscious thing that happens to kids. It's something that just happens naturally. And it's a good, useful thing to the four-year-old because it helps them to get through the situation. The problem is, is that when you wince and repeat that experience of dissociative defense and helpfulness when they're four, it locks in that as a habit neurologically and you're 35 and your boss is criticizing you and you dissociate. And you can't function, you know, dissoci- when you're in a dissociative state, it's it's very hard to function. You might not even remember what happened while you were in that, you know, you might dissociate for an hour and and not even remember what happened during that past hour. Based on the little bit that Trisha said, I'm guessing that more general dissociative. Now, a form of dissociation is actually having different alters where... One altar will experience the trauma. Another altar will fight back. Another altar will be nice at school. Another altar will be the good kid with the friends. Another altar will be the rebel. You know, and this is a, a way of responding to very difficult times when you're young.
1: No, oh, maybe it's the drug like you stopping. I don't know. Maybe there's something that that helped it, but not recently. But um, yeah. I good. mean, all the time, I would just good. remember or not remember what I said. So, yeah.
2: And, and is that usually in a rage? Or just can happen randomly. Yeah.
1: No, always in a rage. and what?
2: Okay, they're about to expand. But if it is only in a rage,
0: then we could consider it a dissociative state. We could also consider it a PTSD state. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate between those two. But when people are triggered, when we have trauma and we haven't recovered from it, because we haven't been through effective trauma recovery and therapy, or we just haven't recovered then and will be triggered one of the responses is for the body to so one way to think about it is that for people who have been through significant trauma, so say that you're abused or neglected or something and you're being attacked and it's highly traumatic and your psychology reacts to it in such a way that it can't integrate that memory into our into our personality or into our psyche or a long-term memory or something. It's very, it's a very difficult memory, and we have a hard time dealing with it. So it kind of stays static is one of the ways that people think about it. And then 30 years later, that the vibe of that emo- So imagine that you are you're seven years old and you're being bullied by three kids at school. They're they're hitting you, they're hitting you. And then the bullies suddenly run off and you're a friend and you run up to your seven-year-old friend and you're seven and you and you say, oh my God, how are, you, how are you doing? And you grab your friend and, and you try to pick him up and your friend punches you in the face. Not a good thing, but we understand that because the your friend, the seven-year-old is, it, is in a state of like, get away from me, you know? And even though you're trying to help, they punch you, okay. So if your trauma never gets resolved and you're 30 years later and someone comes along and starts to kind of poke at you and threaten you, then you will react as if that past trauma that happened 30 years ago just happened right now. And you just start swinging and you're just, you know, and you go into a state, it's it's almost like this different, in the same way that the seven-year-old kid who's being bullied and you walk up, they're not in their normal state. They're in a different state. Give them five minutes or five hours, they'll they'll calm down, they'll take some deep, deep breaths, they'll be in a different state. But right now, they're in this highly reactive, almost animalistic state. Well, that's what PTSD can create as well. You can go to war and bring that back with you. You can bring it with you from childhood trauma. You can bring it with you from being bullied at work or at school or something. And I wonder, and, and, and so that can be experienced and be described as dissociative, but I would describe it more as a trauma reaction, but maybe Trisha will elaborate.
1: That's all I had was my stories, which are true to what I remember and stuff. And as a kid, I I think I started developing like lying, intentional lying, because people just didn't believe me anyway. So I would just like make up stuff. So I think I did as a child lie a lot and then it got me into like really serious trouble as like a teenager. And so I was just like, okay, I need to not do that. But I was-
0: Okay, that's interesting. And I'm really glad that Trisha is able to admit that. What they're saying is- when they were a child, they needed. They were accused of lying when they weren't lying. And that hurts to be acute. You're, you're lying, you're lying, and you're like, I, I, I'm not lying. And eventually, you're just thinking, well, if I lie purposely, at least I have power over this accusation. It's similar to when you call a kid a bad kid. You're a bad kid, you're a bad kid. It's like, I'm a good kid. I'm trying to be good. And then eventually, that kid's, well, screw it. If I'm going to be called bad, then I'm just going to act bad because at least... If I'm going to be accused of something, at least I can say that I did it on purpose. Because to, to be accused of something that you didn't do, you are being treated unfairly and you feel powerless. But to but to bring it on, to lie and then cause people to say you're lying, you're being you're being mistreated. But at least you're doing some. You ha- at least you can say that you have some power in the equation, and so. Tricia is saying that that's what they did. They were being accused, and then they decided that they would lie. And it, I'm guessing, gave Trisha a sense of power. And, and good for Tricia to be able to admit that. What can happen to people is that it'll set in this habit of what we call compulsive or pathological lying, where you're lying for no reason, even as an
2: adult, when you're no longer in that context. Before the self-harm doesn't go with histrionics so much, right? you tried to yeah. hurt yourself.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's more that was borderline. a time when yeah. I. Yeah. 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 I mean, intent, and, like again. And, I don't and,
2: think and that le- was me. Yeah. And, and let me let me say let me ask this. And, and the other thing, it's it's associated with this with a uncertain sense of who you are. Is that is that one of your things? Okay. So they're talking about histrionic personality disorder,
0: which is very similar to borderline, and some might even consider it a subset of borderline, or borderline a subset of histrionic, or histrionic a borderline subset of some other larger umbrella personality disorder label. But Drew is saying that with histrionic, you lack a sense of who you are. This is true for a lot of personality disorders, particularly borderline and histrionic. Dr. Drew seems to be differentiating the histrionic. The connection to the self is a problem, and for borderline, it's not. Histrionic, narcissism, borderline, uh, all narcissistic, did I say all? <laughs> all have a problem with a disconnection of the self and, and a, a lack of this. We used to say lack of self, but really it's a lack of connection with the self because there's definitely a self down there. I've talked about this before, but in brief, when we're young, we are not really aware of ourselves. You know, a, a six-month-old baby, a 18-month-old child doesn't really know their emotions. They don't really know who they are. They're not in connection with their needs. They're just very reactive. When they're sad, they cry. When they're happy, they laugh. But they have a hard time reflecting on who they are. They don't really know who they are. Their emotions just cause these signaling to other people and other people hopefully react to them in a a tuned way. But over time, what we're hoping for is that the child will learn to not just react, but also see themselves through other people's eyes. And, that, and that's how we help children is that we reflect to a child. We say, oh, you're, you're enjoying yourself. Oh, you're sad. Oh, you're sleepy. Oh, you're tired. Oh, you are enjoying that cookie. Oh, you're afraid of that dog. And, you, and it's more complicated than just saying, but it's being with the child as they go through their experiences. Asking a child, what do you want right now? How do you feel? asking the child to reflect and then being a containment for those feelings. And so the child learns through repetition, repetition, repetition to identify their needs and their emotions such that when everything goes well and you're 35 years old and someone asks you, do you like your career? You're able to say, yes. How do we know that we like our career? Is there some kind of, you know, A computer in our head that we just type in this question no we just have this sense well how do we get a hold of that sense how do we have a notion of that sense do I like my career or do I not like my career we get that through that repetition when we're in that critical window between the ages of like three and six maybe a little bit beyond that maybe a little bit before that but it's around those years and if you are not properly attuned to as Trisha has discussed how their parents were neglecting them. Mom worked. Uh, Trisha said that they never saw their mom. Mom worked a lot. Trisha said never saw dad. Dad just sent Trisha off to summer school or summer camp. And so if you don't have that reflection and that time of learning, who am I? What do I want? How do I know my needs? Then you can be in your adult life and Be trying to meet your needs because your needs are down there. The self is down there. Your emotions, your needs are down there, but you can't see them. The analogy I give is you're looking into a bedroom and it's pitch black and it looks like it's empty, but it's not. You just have to turn up the light switch and that's where therapy comes in. It's a therapy that involves getting in connection with that self, getting in connection with who I am. A lot of people who look into that room and it's dark, they think it's empty and they're terrified. A lot of people with personality disorders, borderline histrionic, when they look at the self, they see emptiness and that terrifies them. And I've been with people as they look into the abyss and they are very scared of it. But it's not an abyss, it's not black, it's just dark and you have to turn up the light. There are things in there, you have needs, you are somebody, you have emotions, you're just not in connection with them. And so it takes practice and it's the only way that you can have well-being because only you know Deep in your soul, who you are and what you need and what you want. And you need to get in connection with that. And you need a relationship, a set of relationships around you that support you in your connection with that. You can't just look in, you have to have people asking you, what do you want? How do you feel? And and be a safe environment to explore your own emotions and your own needs. So people with borderline histrionic narcissism lack that because they lacked that critical period when they were young. And so I think that's what they're talking about.
1: Identity disorder, that was maybe where I got that more because like I've always said this and I don't, I'm not really sure if it's just like, I don't know who I am and as 33 old, but just I never, I've always, and I think I talked about this before with you, where I just like cling to like famous people identities or even the people I'm dating. I just try and like, I just try and become like the people around me and my personality is constantly changing and my obsessions are changing.
0: Right, it's interesting. So in my research on the TikTok dissociative identity disorder phenomenon, I came across some people that were saying that they had dissociative identity disorder. I couldn't know if they did or they didn't. But they were also saying that one of their alters was a famous person. Like they were literally Oprah Winfrey or Ryan Reynolds or Barack Obama or something. And that was, they were them. And when they would say, okay, now my Barack Obama alter is fronting, they would act like Barack Obama. And that is possible. I, I will say, in the people that I've treated with dissociative identity disorder, I didn't see that. I could see that happening. I, I don't know. I can't assess over TikTok. But what Tricia is talking about is much more easily understood by me because I have seen this. Where because you lack that sense of self, you will look outward because you're you're looking for something to guide your behavior, something to give you meaning in life because you don't even know how to imagine. Because everyone, eventually, most people fall into a career of some kind. Well, imagine if you just sort of fall into it and you're doing all these things. You're going to church. You're having kids. You're you're going to a job. And you have no way of knowing, is this what I want? I, I see other people doing these things and they seem to want this. And I'm doing it, but do I want it? Everyone else seems to think that this is fulfilling. Is it fulfilling? How do I even know it's fulfilling? Does it feel fulfilling? So... It's sometimes easier just to adopt another person's motivations and meanings. So you might that do you might do that with a spouse or a best friend or a famous person. And it it's something to land on. It doesn't ultimately help because the random likelihood that your vision of a famous person will align with your needs is pretty slim. The chance of that's pretty slim, but that is a motivation for it. And could be misinterpreted as a dissociative identity disorder when in fact it's just a desperation of a it's a desperate defense in response to a lack of connection with the self. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. Let me know what you think of this kind of episode, because, you know, I, for 13 plus years, I've been making an audio podcast and then every once in a while I would make a video episode, but over the past year or so, I've been making a lot more video episodes and a lot of the video episodes I've just been leaving on YouTube and not crossing it over to the audio podcast feed like I am right now. I want the audio podcast feed to be more serious, more clinical, more, I don't know, just the way that the tone of the show that it's always been or the way it's been over the last five years. And a lot of the audio or a lot of the YouTube stuff that I do, I, I don't think is in that category. I, I don't want to clutter up the audio podcast feed. But but I felt like this episode, this video, a uh, series of videos suited itself. And so let me know what you think about, about it because occasionally I will do a reaction video and I'll be like, wow, I've, I kind of feel like I, I went into some things that I'd, I've never gone into before. And then I think, well, wow, moving on in life. Uh, so... I don't know. Let me know what you think about this. Um, If I don't hear from anyone, I'm just going to continue as is, meaning that I will keep the YouTube channel pretty much separate from the audio podcast feed. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for joining me. And let me know what you think of all the things that I said. I said a lot of random things. And take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.
2: (laughs)